Hello and welcome to Story Untold. I'm Martin Bauman and we've made it to the Gretzky episode, number 99, and it's a good one. My guest today has lived quite a life. Sherry DeNovo has been a street kid, a church minister, and a three-term member of provincial parliament. At 20 years old, she was the only woman to sign Canada's first gay rights manifesto in 1971. 30 years later, she performed Canada's first legalized same-sex marriage. She's passed more private members' bills than anyone in Ontario's history, and she's been made a member of the Order of Canada. Her latest memoir, The Queer Evangelist, is out now through Wilfrid Laurier University Press. Here's her story. You know, Sherry, I've been reading about place and how we're shaped by the world around us. And I was hoping that we could start by talking about one place in particular for you. You dub the house that you grew up in, or rather your brother Don dubbed this house as the House of Usher. Could you give some backstory for why and what that house was like? Yeah, um, so of course, it's uh, after a book uh, by Edgar Allan Poe, uh, a horror story. And my brother was being, of course, tongue-in-cheek, facetious in his description, but there was some truth to it. Um, I mean, on the surface, it was this wonderful, chaotic, matriarchal, uh, artistic kind of place. Um, When the guests left, it wasn't so much. Uh, it My mother essentially had two husbands, and that led to friction, as you can imagine. My biological father, who was there and not there, depending on the day, and then um, my Uncle Ken, as we called him, who was there all the time and uh, was essentially a, another dad to me. Um, so that was part of the friction. Uh, Ken um, was... Certainly uh, someone I loved and I believe loved me, but uh, a particularly damaged human being, not through his own um, his own hands. Uh, he'd been through the war. Uh, according to him, he had been one of the liberation forces uh, from um, uh, a concentration camp in the Second World War. Clearly bore the scars of that, had mm-hmm. the old Kodak photos to show from it. Um, was a very violent person. I mean, very controlled, very, uh, you know, from the military. And then that control would erupt in violence. The violence was not directed at me, but it was directed at my my mother's sister who lived with us, who had mental health issues. Uh, I described one situation at the breakfast table where he took a knife and slashed her across the neck. No real provocation just erupted out of nowhere. And eventually the same Ken uh, shot himself, killed himself, uh, shot himself through the head. I found the body. I was a kid and um, had a had a dream about it beforehand. Children are very intuitive and I could pick up, obviously after that one incident in the kitchen, um, that there were other things at work in Ken's psyche and pictured walking up to his room, which is on the third floor of our house, and opening the door and not and being frightened to open the door and just mm-hmm. like backing away. So the dream would end, the nightmare would end there. The reality, the real nightmare did not end there. So I discovered the body, it was gruesome. Uh, had a cousin at that point who was in the RCMP. It just transferred, I think, to the provincial force somewhere in between. 
called him and um, he came to kind of take charge of things. The one thing I knew as a kid was not to tell my mother, um, but to kind of handle it myself. So that is a lot of weight to put on a child, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of weight. And, and you know, it's difficult. It was really difficult to write. It's difficult even to talk about now, um, decades later. But, um, but I did it because there are other children, many other children, particularly queer children, who have gone through trauma at home and need to talk about it and should talk about it. And uh, there weren't any obvious answers back then. There are some now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I, I just want to thank you, too, for, for that uh, story there and for the, the writing that you've done in your book. It's a real gift to people of all stripes. And just in, I think, opening a door into what trauma can be like. I mean, trauma, every person has a uh, different experience with it, but... But just to get a better understanding of what that can be like for somebody and how, uh, as you write in the book, uh, the, the letter always gets delivered, um, how, how that can come back uh, through, through decades and, and manifest in different ways. You mentioned um, knowing that you couldn't tell your mother at the time. How come? Well, I knew she'd be hysterical. Mm-hmm. And, I, and from a very early age, dealing with all these pretty neurotic people in my household, um, many with demons of their own, um, I knew to raise myself, if uh, and many children are in that position in chaotic households, they kind of take charge. Uh, they become the adults de facto because somebody has to, and they have to. They have to get their clothes on, go to school, eat, etc. So, so there are many instances of stories like mine, and this was one of them. But she couldn't handle it. She didn't handle it well, uh, and I knew that. So I knew that that shouldn't be my first call. That I I should shut that door. I should call someone else. I should let her know from someone else what happened, mm. and um, and and so that was that was learned behavior from other less horrific instances in the household, uh, but that's just the way our household functioned. And again, I want to emphasize it's not unique. You know, I'm in my practice as clergy, but also simply talking to to folk and you know like attracts like you know some of my best friends are people who've had traumatic mm. <laughs> childhoods and so you know we we all function somewhat the same there is that similarity hmm. what were you like as a kid in these years uh, obviously growing up in some respects faster because of shouldering different responsibilities but just the the kid you were the you know who who you were at that time Sure. I, I mean, so I was probably a bad kid in terms of behavior. <laughs> I certainly was a, you know, I was not the teenager you want to have around, that's for sure. Um, I, I mean, I was a queer kid uh, from the earliest. I remember having both uh, attractions to both sexes. and uh, But I didn't know how, how to name that. I didn't know mm-hmm. what that meant. Uh, I talk about a scene in the book where boys chased me home from school calling me a dyke, and I had no idea what that was, what that meant. Um, I knew it was a slur, but, you know, didn't know. They probably didn't know either, mm-hmm. <laughs> for that matter, you know, kids. Um, but uh, but it taught me to run fast, and uh, I came to know what that meant. And, and as a queer kid, as a kid that didn't fit in, um, both because of my family, because of the times, because of my sexuality, um, I left home at and dropped out of school at grade 10 at 15, and from then on kind of lived mostly on the streets of Toronto, was certainly self, um, uh, self-funding from that point on, um, went home rarely, as rarely as I could get away with. And, uh, and so that, that definitely is a different story, but again, not unique. Um, there are many queer kids uh, that are on the street and 
In fact, um, that's one of the common denominators of street kids, mm -hmm. usually. Um, mm -hmm. And also, um, you know, traumatic backgrounds at home, partly because they're queer and sometimes not. Mm -hmm. Tell me about Toronto in that time. You know, uh, part of Place 2 is the city you're growing up in. And, and so what Toronto was like in the 50s and 60s as you're a kid and then a teen, um, just the city around you, the people around you. Yeah, so unrecognizable um, from the city it is today, but in some ways better, in some ways much better. And I, and I try to highlight that. I mean, you know, we knew the street people back then. There weren't thousands of people living on the streets as there are now. I mean, there was a cluster of displaced kids around the Yorkville area who basically were street kids. And then there were other street people for mental health or addiction issues, but not many. And and why was that? Well, it had nothing to do with partisanship, interestingly enough. We had conservative governments, you know, city, province, and federally for most of that period. Um, but you could live on welfare. You could actually pay the rent in Toronto on welfare, mm. called welfare back then, and um, and feed yourself. So guess what? There's a very simple answer to homelessness. Give people enough to live on. So there was that. We didn't have food banks. You know, there was the one shelter that I knew of that was kind of a food bank, and that was Fred Victor Mission, um, still is still there today. And uh, there was the mission on um, Spadina as well, the Scott Mission. Those were it, really. There wasn't the plethora of food banks and dry, like none of that. So we were much in, in a real way healthier province, country, and city, you know, on one salary, people could afford a home in Toronto. And many middle class, because we had a vibrant middle class back then, could mm. afford a cottage as well. That was the way a lot of kids grew up. And of course, the other thing was it wasn't a very diverse city back then either. I mean, you know, uh, I was part of a brotherhood poster and there's a picture of me, you know, playing skipping with my then friend Marva, who was black and was Jamaican. She was the only black kid in the entire school at Huron Street Public School downtown school. Um, uh, Spadina was mainly Jewish immigrants. The rag trade was huge on Spadina from, you know, survivors of the Holocaust and others that had come over. Um, but in terms of uh, BIPOC folk, you know, there wasn't a lot of presence in Toronto back then. And, and so, of course, you know, it was very white supremacist reality, too. Uh, I mean, and not just white supremacist, I mean, incredibly prejudiced place. Um, it was misogynist. Women didn't have many rights. Um, they were limited to what they could get into as in medicine or engineering. Um, my dad, who was Italian, um, Italians were not allowed to have outdoor patios or to congregate on the streets. They were okay to build the roads, but not to do that. I mean, uh, Irish were looked down on, Roman Catholics. I mean, there mm -hmm. were all these, uh, trust me, we learned how to hate each other in different ways back then, mm. um, but, uh, but very, very different. Uh, so in that way, very much better. Um, very much better. Um, but in terms of actually being able to financially get by, I think worse. Mm -hmm. yeah. Did you uh, feel that at the time, the attitudes around Italian Canadians and attitudes around queer people? Did, did, did you feel that hostility? Oh, absolutely. I mean, first of all, um, even in the hip kind of cool kid 
circles, it was not okay to be queer. Um, I knew that um, and internalized that. And also I knew from growing up in what was a pretty diverse public school by Toronto standards back then, Curran Street, um, that it was way better to have a name like my mother's last name, Wilson or Patrick even, than DeNovo. Like I learned that that mm -hmm. was not a good name to have. Uh, teachers tripped over it, you know, that kind of thing. So you learn that very, very quickly and internalize that. And of course, being a woman, I mean, you know, it was just, it was the early days of, of even thinking about feminism. And it was just, you know, I grew up in feminism as a feminist, but early days of the second wave of feminism, right? So in my schooling, we laughed at what they call suffragettes, not suffragists, you know, we laughed at them. I remember my history teacher laughing at women trying to get the vote, thinking this was funny. Um, you know, if you look at the film now, Mary Poppins, you see the image of, oh, those silly women that went out and tried to get the vote, you know. So, I mean, feminism was very much a part, but just beginning to be a part of my, my growing up. So, um, so I'm grateful, profoundly grateful for that. Uh, that's never left. Um, and, you know, we kids kind of, we were feral, right? Like we were feral children. So we kind of learned on our own, but, but there were sources of learning. So that was a positive. I mean, there were good bookstores. It was so much cheaper to live. So we could, you know, all pile into one room and survive. Um, but I mean, ultimately, we live the way street kids have to live now, which is, uh, you can only live by being a criminal, you know, you can only live by, um, for girls, it was two choices, you know, you're either involved in, in the drug trade, or you sell your body, I chose the drug trade. Uh, but you couldn't get a legal job, you know, and even when we could, when we were of age to say work part time, it wasn't enough to keep you even back then. So, as I say, luckily, student welfare, that got me back to school, allowed me the possibility of getting off the streets. But, um, but certainly it was, it, it was, you know, overall less expensive, but more costly in other ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about the the group around you. Uh, it, it it feels like in in the book that you're writing about, like a community in some senses. You know, the community of street kids around you who are gathering, all wanting to be Burroughs or Jimi Hendrix or or Janis Joplin. Uh, oh yeah, I mean we were we were nothing if not arrogant as kids. I mean we <laughs> we and and we were smart. I mean there were, there were many of us. I mean just incredible intelligence pooled back then. When I think about it, many who've gone on the ones who survived, many did not survive. Um, most of the boys ended up doing prison terms. Um, that was misogyny at work too. They didn't think girls, you know, could really be that involved in the drug trade. So the boys got the brunt of that. But you know, yeah, we 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 read. I remember reading French authors from A to Z to you know our toe to Zola, you know, and, and we listened to jazz and we listened to whatever was coming, you know, out of, you know, current popular music. Um, and we heard many of the greats in Yorkville, you know, if we could afford to sneak in, you know, we heard everybody was playing there. Lots of black musicians would come up from the States. And so it was a really vibrant time. Um, so the kids that did survive that I'm still in touch with, you know, have done amazing things. I mean, started the you know mariposa folk festival and then the vancouver folk festival um my my girlfriend in new york you know went on to dance with alvin eiley and uh still and we still get together you know we're when we're in the same town we still see each other um but yeah i would say those are the exceptions to the rule though uh, we're very cognizant of that there were a lot of kids on the street that did not survive 
that uh, overdose that had breakdowns that ended up in prison for very long periods of time, which then had its own ramifications. So we were the lucky ones. Being around that crew, was that purely a refuge for you? Or was it was there something that you were after, be it community or, or meaning or, or an answer or, or anything in that regard? Well, absolutely. All of the above, I think, is the answer. Um, but uh, also safety. You know, really, when I look at us from an adult's point of view, what we thought we were, were cool kids that were looking for adventure. And, you know, as the song goes, whatever came our way out on the highway, you know. But I mean, the reality is that we all shared a common denominator, and that was traumatic, chaotic home lives, and the street was safer. It was simply safer. And that's still something that we all shared with the kids who are on the street today. The street was safer than home. And, um, you know, I tell some of those stories, but, you know, kids that were locked in closets to punish them. I mean, and we're talking about middle class families here, you know, with, you know, with some means back then. Um, I mean, the working class kids also, you know, cross class, we shared our traumatic backgrounds. Um, but I mean, I think it's, it's kind of shocking to people to think that these were, you know, these were parents who were kind of upstanding citizens in their ways, you know, who, you know, who's some of them, you know, not my family, but some of them, you know, their, their portraits, you know, grace the halls, banks and places of power. And this is how the kids were treated at home. So still no different still going on, still produces uh, wave after wave of street children, which is why we need such options for them. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit in time here, but um, you write in the book about, you go back to school after a certain point, you go back to uh, this college, Centennial College, and you write about it as being a, as being a real, I think, place of, of healing in some regards. Uh, you know, we learned to love our our damaged selves. Uh, I'm being the, the politically correct <laughs> version here, but um, could you talk a little bit about that time there and the people there that made it uh, what it was? Yeah, um, kudos to Centennial College, by the way, shout outs there. Um, yes, it, it was a kind of interim, one of the first, if not the first, that I was aware of in the, in the GTA um, that gave you a high school equivalency without having go, to go back to high school. I mean, we were already old by then. I think I was 19, right? I felt too old to go back to high school. And, uh, and because of uh, its experimental nature, it was really when I look at it of all my years of university now and I've got a doctorate, et cetera, it was the best year uh, in terms of teachers, in terms of class size. We had relatively small classes in terms of the student population who were all kids like me. Some of them would, would get day passes from prison to go there, you know. Um, other kids were just off the street, like I was, who got referred there for whatever reason. And the teachers also weren't quite qualified to teach in universities or real colleges, right? So you got this heady mix of people who were kind of the outsiders themselves, a defrocked priest who was an author, you know, a playwright, who taught about world religions and philosophy and was a magician, <laughs> for him. Um, uh, another prof who was uh, taught history, who, you know, 
was a refugee, a Jewish refugee from the pogroms in the Soviet Union. I mean, really interesting people with interesting backgrounds. So, so you know, I remember having a a, a party in the basement of my parents' place in in that in those days, and uh, and inviting students and my and the faculty, and everybody came, and it was like your usual you know drug fueled crazy party from that era. But I mean, the fact that we were we all saw ourselves as you know kind of much much of a muchness, you know, is is really something in itself. There was no them and us in at Centennial. So it was this halcyon moment, and yes, and we staged Murat Saad as a dramatic presentation. And as I say in the book, you know, that's a story about the French Revolution enacted by the denizens of an asylum, a mental asylum in France. And it's a brilliant, brilliant play. And of course, uh, I say in the book, many of us did not have to act. We were just being ourselves. <laughs> You join a group later on uh, as you become start to become more politically active. Uh, could you tell me a little bit about the Velvet Fist and uh, what that is? Yeah, so um, so it became obvious to me as a teen. Um, I think watching a CBC documentary about the environment that that capitalism and the planet could not coexist healthily. Um, in other words, if you have companies who have to grow to please their shareholders uh, by say 10% a year. And ultimately every company, you know, is dependent upon extraction. Even in the IT industry, we need our computers, you know, ultimately stuff comes from the earth that you couldn't have both simultaneously, that there had to be some controls and that control had to come from, the people had to come from government. So, um, so I, you know, became an anti-capitalist. I became a socialist, still am. And uh, so I looked around for where to be. Um, the NDP was there, but it seemed a little too, I don't know, adult, a little bit too, you know, as it does <laughs> some days still, centrist. Uh, and so I looked out, you know, where to be a socialist. And I knew that the Soviet Union wasn't the model. Um, we could see what Stalinism had wrought and the gulag. So didn't want to go there. So where then? Um, and so Trotskyism, which was another take on the Russian Revolution, right, but it was still Marxist, was where I went. And that's where I ended up. Um, that was another group of phenomenal young people and the young socialists back then. We had a senior group as well. And uh, very heady, uh, got involved in lots, anti-Vietnam War movement um, for starters, we were sort of leaders in that movement, but many, many other movements. And out of that group um, came, um, you know, those women of us who were involved also in feminism, um, who wanted to see feminism as being something that the left took up. It wasn't easy, you know, our, our group, uh, even though socialist and Marxist, you know, modeled what they'd learned and they learned misogyny and they learned homophobia. So that was very much alive in the left at that time. And I write about that. But the Velvet Fist was an attempt by some of the women in that group to branch out and do something feminist. So I became one of the editors of that paper. I still have, you know, it's yellowing now. Um, I still have a copy of that paper. And Alice Klein, who went on to start now, uh, magazine. She was also an editor on the editorial board. And I joke that we discovered later that there was an RCMP agent who also you know, worked <laughs> in the movement undercover. And uh, as I say, you know, uh, we wouldn't have cared. We just needed all hands on deck. So we needed the help. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you know, that really struck me in the book that being these groups still, while they could be radically socialist on the one hand, still 
fell back on those same tired roles when it came to women and, and queer folks. You know, you write about wanting to find a home where we could be revolutionary queer and women. Um, yeah. Talk a little bit about that that fight. Yeah, I mean, it's still the case, right? I mean, it's still the case. I, I, and and again, of course, it's, I, you know, not to, you know, not to, to uh, you have to put it in context, let's put it that way. Um, in context against the right, of course, you know, the left is far, far in advance. But uh, as we've learned from the uprising of Black Lives Matter, I mean, there's still so much more to do on the left. Uh, the left is still oblivious to many aspects of its own functioning. I mean, I still hear as a dominant narrative from the left, um, well, identity politics is not the way to go. It's working class, class-based politics. Yes, there's truth to that. Absolutely, there's truth to that. I mean, you know, it's different to be Oprah than it is to be George Floyd, right? Mm -hmm. um, yes, it's different to be a wealthy woman than it is to be a woman working in a factory. No doubt class has a lot to do with it, but not all to do with it, right? So we really have to look at the, the issues of gender. We really have to look at the issues of queerness across the spectrum. Uh, I mean, these are, you know, these in a sense predate, they predate the ways that we've organized our societies. I mean, you know, I read the Bible a lot, right? 2000 years old, it's there. Um, and that was futile, maybe, you know, it, it certainly wasn't capitalist and it certainly wasn't socialist. So, so predating capitalism and socialism and any of the isms that we have today, um, misogyny was there, queer, queer phobia was there. These were realities. And so they're kind of, they're very deep within us. And unless we deal directly with them in some way, shape or form, they will haunt us and they will skew our politics. And sadly, I think there's, it's still the case. Mm -hmm. You write in this book that women are written out of history constantly. And this book is an attempt to write some of them back in. Could you, could you speak to that? Yeah. Um, well, we know it. Whoever reads philosophy or theology or history if you look at who wrote the book, they're almost always men. And of course, the farther back you get, the more that's the case. And I always laugh that usually in the frontispiece, there's a, you know, a, a nod to some woman, mm. <laughs> the woman who did the research, mm -hmm. the woman who married them and did everything to allow them to be able to do this book, mm -hmm. this great work, you know. So we know that that's part of our history, just the way we know, for example, race is a part and colonialism is a part of our history. We know that misogyny is a part of our history. So, um, so that's clear. And it's still there. And it's worse when it's not recognized. So in other words, um, now we're in a digital age, I talk about, you know, clipping, um, you know, through my days, my 11 years, and then some at Queens Park, you know, I clipped newspaper clippings, it seems so old world, right to do that. But the reason I did it was because digitally, um, things disappear, and you have to hunt for them after a while. And it's really tricky to find sometimes actually what happened because spin happens and spin takes hold, as you know from your immediate background, Martin. So spin takes hold and it becomes the truth. So, um, so history is, you know, it's very malleable. And, and so I learned very early on that where women were concerned, uh, you really, 
Uh, and I would say this, you know, women have to keep their own history just as BIPOC people and indigenous and others have learned to keep their own history. We have to keep ours. And, uh, and it's so important because you fall off the page. You literally fall off the page. And someone else will take uh, credit for things that you did uh, and things that your sisters did. And that's the reality of the world in which we live still. So, um, so yeah, um, still the case. Hmm. Uh, you mentioned uh, the, the Bible earlier. I, I want to talk a bit about your, your faith story because it, it's not something that you grew up with. No, it's not. Although, you know, it was very much a, uh, a world back then that was state and church were closely aligned, you know. Um, there was no, uh, no hesitancy to have Christmas stories in the public schools, to say the Lord's Prayer and all of that. That was part of Ontario public education, um, which was not good. Um, so, of course, we kind of were inculcated into the stories, even though my parents were atheists slash agnostics. Um, we didn't get it at home. Um, we still got it somewhere. We got it in pop popular culture back then. Uh, so I did kind of know the stories of Jesus, and I always loved them, but I kind of came at them through the Rolling Stones more than I came at them <laughs> through the Bible, you know, um, you know, the prodigal son, you know, great Rolling Stone blues song, you know, and, and, and of course, it's interesting, isn't it, that the Stones themselves, of course, you know, use the work of black artists uh, and, you know, black uh, blues songs to fuel their uh, fame. Mm -hmm. But uh, but there it was, you know, th this beautiful story of the prodigal son, um, the story of the cross, uh, where Jesus says to the thief dying next to him, today you'll be with me in paradise, which I just assumed as an atheist um, was a lie, because there is no such thing as paradise. Uh, but I thought, wow, that's such an amazing story. Like, who would say that? Who would, while being tortured and dying, have the wherewithal to turn to someone next to them, a thief, and say this, give them hope even though it's false and then i thought and even if this entire scenario is made up by some author and it never even happened who is that author who made up this story this is not the kind of story i have read anywhere else so so there was something about the stories that really moved me um and uh and then so there was that there was my son who saw a neon cross outside an evangelical church and said, Mommy, what's that lighted tea for? Mm -hmm. And I realized that my kids didn't have a clue about the canon of Western literature. And I thought to myself, how will they read Shakespeare if they don't know these stories? So how do they learn these stories without being inculcated with, you know, transphobia, homophobia, misogyny, and the rest of what I saw churches being? Um, so I was, thought, well, let's find a church that doesn't do that. Just happened to coincide with the United Church of Canada in 1988 uh, ordaining openly gay and lesbian folk. So I knew I couldn't walk into a place and hold my head up without walking to a church that did that. And also a church in our particular case at that time that was very social justice oriented, that was looking at the war in Iraq as being, was this a just war or not? Things like that. So, I mean, here was this place and I thought, well, okay, so We'll take the kids there. They'll go out to Sunday school and learn the stories they need to know so they can read Shakespeare. And, you know, we'll have some quiet time without the kids and whatever, you know, at least, at least, uh, you know, they're not saying anything hateful. 
and just happened to have the right minister, just happened to walk into the right church. And of course, I was in business then, a whole other part of my life. So I was making lots of money, realized my material dreams, had a big house in the suburbs, uh, had nice cars, had a swimming pool, had you know European vacations, um, did it on my own, um, learned the skills I'd learned on the street in sales of drugs, <laughs> took those sales skills that I honed in the socialist movement, selling newspapers, and took them into the business world, same skills, <laughs> and sold in the business world, right? Um, uh, but my moods were so dependent on my billings every month, and now I had employees who were dependent on my billings, and a family that was dependent on my billings, and so there was stress in, in, in regards to that. So my, you know, in this time of COVID, I mean, I'm totally with small business, like I know where you're at. Um, when you lose your business, like losing a child, you know, it's it's something you put poured your heart and soul into, and so, and it's where much of the great entrepreneurial ideas come from that fuel bigger business, right? So uh, so that was me. And then when the recession of the early 90s hit and I looked at, uh-oh, uh my billings aren't going to be what they are. Um, I'm going to have to think about doing something else or, you know, have twice as many clients for half as, half as much in terms of billings. That, that plus what I'd been hearing in church, where I'd been in my life at that point, um, in a marriage that was kind of failing, uh, all of those things come together to, you know, produce what is very biblical, really, a kind of epiphany. It's like that road to Damascus where you're a murderer one day and the next day you fell off your horse and you know, got to learn to do something different. And so I, I fell off my horse and learned to do something different um, and decided that, you know, if I was going to, I didn't want to have to start the business all over again. This was an opportunity, uh, uh, even though it was incredibly stressful, um, to do something maybe more valuable. And um, and so I went back to do my master's in theology, not necessarily thinking I wanted to be ordained, but just wanted to spend time studying something completely different from business, completely different from politics, um, and actually discovered not so different, there are similarities, but um, but absolutely something that just I was moved to do, and uh, and I'm so glad I did it. Still the best job in the world. Mm. That's good to hear. Uh, so you decide uh, to get ordained, and and that this is uh, you know a time for a career change, and you know at the time it probably still persists today, but uh, just part of the practice is that when you join a church, you are often sent to rural communities. Uh, you, you're, you're often sent to somewhere farther away from home to start uh, to, you know, I don't know, cut your teeth, if you will, or just uh, to pick up the skills and, um, and serve in that way. So here you are, a, a city kid, uh, you know, a, a socialist, a, a queer woman, and uh, known Toronto your whole life, and off you go to, you know, rural Ontario, about two and a half hour drive away. Uh, what are you thinking, feeling at the time of that move? Uh, well, I was feeling, you know, sort of half excitement, half trepidation. I mean, I had to, you know, I organized my kids. You know, my daughter was just going into university then, and my son was just going into high school, and he didn't want to move with me. So, you know, here I was, you know, off in this manse, you know, you know, in the middle of nowhere. It's to me, I'm not in the middle of nowhere to them. Um, but I was also kind of excited to be immersed in a community where, that was totally different from anything I'd known. I mean, I, I kind of was full of the adventurous spirit in that sense. 
and um and my trepidations turned out to you know be false truly i mean i learned so much i'm so glad i went i hope um in, in those days in the united church you were sent now you have to find your own position but that tends to be of course away from the big pulpits as we see mm -hmm. them tends to be in smaller communities and and i would absolutely say to everyone um you know if you're living and you're raised in a city experience something different uh, um and if you're raised in the country, the same, because they are so different, even two and a half hours away. Uh, I mean, everything was different out there. The way we saw the world was different. The way we did family or political views are different. Everything was different. And so I used to joke with them that the only thing in common was that we both spoke English, you know, that mm. other than that, we really, you know, we were getting to, to learn about each other's realities through each other. And, and it was, it was, they're incredible people. I mean, I'm, uh, I still, you know, hats off. Um, I still, you know, I still see them as incredible people. I mean, they they usually all vote conservative. <laughs> and despite that, we're very different in our political leanings, but um, uh, but amazing folk. And I have gone back on anniversary Sundays to preach um, on occasion, and I always enjoy it. Uh, I, I learned the, some great kids there, learned to love them and learn to love the people who are there, which is part of ministry in any community you find yourselves. Um, but but certainly, uh, certainly it involves some shaking up of this of this city, uh, of the city mouse, this queer socialist city mouse, no doubt. <laughs> uh, you mentioned politics and uh, maybe a good time to, to talk a little bit about your your political days um, as a member of provincial parliament. You mentioned a number of folks in your book that you describe as saints and one of them being Toby. Uh, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about uh, Toby first and, and how Toby would go on to shape your time as an MPP uh, with, um, with Toby's Law. Sure. So in my first city uh, church, which was at Emmanuel Howard Park, is now Roncesvalle United Church, uh, we had an evening service that uh, I and others started that was mainly populated by people with mental health and addiction issues, people who were street involved like myself growing up. And uh, out of that community came Toby. Uh, Toby uh, was trans, I came to learn, and Toby was an incredibly gifted musician, had actually worked on Ian Tyson albums, was a well-known studio musician in Canada and beyond in the States. And uh, she had uh, gone through, you know, an addiction uh, issue or two and uh, trauma and had ended up on the streets. And she became our evening music director and then ultimately the music director for the entire church. And she died tragically. Not an uncommon story, as I've said, for street folk and street involved folk. And in our case, completely tragic because we loved her. Um, so that uh, that was Toby. Uh, there's a stained glass window with Toby's likeness in that sanctuary. And at her funeral, I said, we're probably the only church in Christendom with a stained glass window of a trans person. And somebody yelled out, well, what about Joan of Arc? <laughs> Good point. Um, and there are, were some other points as well made at that funeral. Uh, but anyway, as I was elected, I certainly take the took the experience of knowing Toby forward. And at that time, trans rights were not seen as part of the Ontario Human Rights Code. And the government at the time simply refused to even consider it. Uh, this was back in 2006. And uh, 
trans folk uh, then and still for the most part in the world now were seen as abnormal, something wrong with them, um, some, something that needed psychiatric intervention, uh, and certainly not something that you wanted to ingrain in a human rights code. Uh, when I think about the way that our world has shifted since then, it's purely uh, revolutionary and miraculous. But a lot of people and a lot of action went into that change. So I tabled a bill called Toby's Law to add trans rights to the Ontario Human Rights Code. And I tabled that bill five times with no support, really with no support around the house. And shouts out to Susan Gapka in that case, an incredible trans activist who kept on plodding on. Uh, she's in the book. But at any rate, finally, finally, in 2012, we got all party support got them to sign on to the bill, which made it much easier to pass, and finally succeeded. So that's the story of Toby's Law and how Toby, um, who was long since dead at that point, uh, will be remembered forever, I hope, in, in law, not only in Ontario, but in Canada, where trans rights many years later passed in the federal government. Um, there's still a lot of work to do, I have to say, because that bill should have changed everything and should change everything, but hasn't quite yet. Mm. So now we're in the educational consciousness raising stages of that, you know, non-gendered bathrooms, mm -hmm. prison system that's welcoming to trans folk, uh, healthcare system that covers trans issues. All of these are battles still to be won. Mm -hmm. That fight to get that law passed seems uh, in some ways a microcosm of your time as an MPP and just what uh, what any member of parliament goes through adapting to the the political system i suppose the tug of war between towing the party line versus representing constituents um how does one prepare for that how did you how did you prepare yourself for that or how did you find your footing in that environment well i didn't <laughs> i was very green when I, I was thrown into it i had no idea i mean i didn't even want to run i mean it wasn't even on my horizon when peggy nash our mp asked me if i would consider it it came out of the blue you know and i that was after i did uh, performed had the honor to perform the first legalized same-sex marriage in, in canada so it gained some notoriety and they thought i could win so that's why they asked me um but um but you know i i finally said yes i would run and then I won. Uh, it was like jumping uh, off the deep end, you know, um, because it was a whole new world. I didn't know the, the laws. I, I was elected in a by-election. I didn't even have what most new members have, which is a kind of training course when you're all starting together and you kind of go through the ropes together. No, I was thrown into the midst of a session, right, where it was like, and there were 10 of us back then. <laughs> there are now 40 in the NDP. There were 10 of us. So we all had like multiple portfolios. So I had to learn just tons of information. And remember, I would stand up, you know, and debate cabinet ministers who had a whole ministry, you know, and that would be just one of my portfolios. And so I didn't sleep much. Um, I described it as starting a business and getting a doctorate all at once in mm -hmm. like overnight. And uh, that's how it felt. So it was a brave new world, no doubt. But here's the thing, um, out of that brave new world, and this is what I say to everyone who's newly elected in positions of power like that. Uh, first of all, you have some. You do have some power. It feels like when you're there, you don't. That the power is held only in the corner office, as they say, only by the 
prime minister, the premier, and uh, those who work for them, or only by your own party's leadership and those who work directly with them. That is not the case. You do have power. Uh, you were elected by your constituents. They expect something of you, and here's what they expect of you. They expect that you tell the truth. <laughs> they expect that you work for them, and they expect that you stand on some principles so that even if you disagree with some of your constituents, that they know where you stand, that you've got some principles and that you hold to them. It's not, you know, I've got some principles, and if you don't like those, I've got some others. No, you've got principles. Um, and uphold them, stand by them. The party cannot fire you. <laughs> the government cannot fire you. Only the electorate can do that. I mean, think of any other profession. Here's a perfect example. Here's a perfect time, an example to model courage, to model the courage of your convictions. So what if you're only one term? A one-term majority government, as has been proven many times, can completely rewrite the laws of the entire jurisdiction that they're in charge of. Completely for good or ill, mm -hmm. <laughs> depending on your point of view. So um, so think about that. But even if you're in opposition, you can accomplish an incredible amount by working with others, by working with others across the aisle, as they say. And, you know, that can be done. And I, I proved it can be done. You know, I'm not alone in that. Um, I passed more private members' bills than anybody in Ontario's history, but I did it by working with others. So... And guess what? You know, it's not all about partisanship. Um, the people who elected you see that you got something done and they're happy that you work with others to get something done on their behalf. And again, you lose sight of that when you're embroiled in, oh, I just need to get reelected. I just need to get, we just have to win. We just have to win. Um, I wish for new, newly elected folk that you just dispense with that fear. Mm. You have a, a quote behind you I want to ask you about. Every revolution seemed impossible until it happened. Um, could you speak about the significance of that quote? Oh, absolutely. Well, you know, because I'm old as dirt, um, but I've seen some, right, in a global sense. I mean, whoever would have thought the Berlin Wall would fall without a nuclear war? I grew up in the fear of nuclear war age, which should be still a fear, by the way. Um, but, um, but yeah, we thought there would be a third world war before we grew up at one point, and that that was the only way that the Soviet Union would crumble, you know, and guess what? It, it happened. It just crumbled like the Berlin Wall. Now, that didn't happen overnight. That happened with, you know, tens of thousands of people working behind the scenes until finally people just said, enough already, you know, and it, it, it just imploded. We see this time and time again in the great revolutions of the world. You know, it looks inevitable but it didn't look inevitable sometimes as, as early as a year or two before. So I, I say to those who want a revolution, which I think we all should want, revolution in the way we do things, revolution the way we look at our planet and treat our resources, uh, revolution the way we treat each other, revolution the way we see, you know, war and its absence and peace. Um, there are many revolutions we need to have. Uh, and trust me, uh, we have to have them. And because we have to have them and need to have them, I think they'll be inevitable. But that doesn't mean that you just sit back and wait for it to happen. It's inevitable because of what we do now. So keep on doing it, even when it seems hopeless. You know, it's hopeless until it happens. <laughs> mm. You know, uh, this, this past year, I think, uh, this pandemic has revealed the fault lines that we've papered over, the way that uh, our society is broken and, and could be fixed and, and ought to be fixed. Um, 
the things that we must change. What's your hope for, for how we go forward? If this is an invitation in some ways to change, uh, what do you hope we do differently coming out of this? Certainly. Well, what I hope we do differently is I hope that we um, take back uh, the power that we have given away to multinationals to run everything in our lives. I hope that we, a, a classic case of this is, you know, a, a victory, it seems it's coming out of the United States where you get a waiver and a patent for COVID vaccines, you know, where, you know, companies that have received billions of dollars in, in public aid can see fit to give away the rights to produce vaccines to countries that desperately need them, life-saving actions. So let's take back the power from multinationals. Let's also, uh, you know, stand up for those who are impoverished. There's enough money, COVID has shown that, there's enough money so that everybody can eat and pay their rent. Um, that's what CERB did. That's what a universal basic income can do. Um, don't stop it, keep it going. Uh, that will lead to less exploitation on the work front. And let's have on the work front, uh, you know, when I was in, in Sweden on a, on a tour, I mean, 85% unionization rate, McDonald's was unionized, you know, they didn't fight about minimum wage there because their minimum wage is about $24 by our, our terms. So, you know, have a living wage. Nobody should have to go into an unsafe workplace, risk their lives and everybody else's lives, by the way, simply to pay their rent. So, so again, a living wage in all jobs. Um, I mean, Henry Ford knew this. You know, Truman knew this, you know, we forget that, that, you know, they knew that unless their workers could afford their products, unless, you know, real estate agents understand that everybody needs to be able to someday afford a place to live of their own, then none of us are going to be free and none of us are going to be safe and none of us are going to be well. And COVID has shown us that. I mean, now we think we can vaccinate our way out of this in Canada or in the United States. We can't do that if all of Africa and India is suffering. We can't do that. I mean, because global travel being what it is, unless we're all safe, none of us are safe. That's true economically too. That is absolutely true. And it's true environmentally too. So we can't squander our resources here and expect the developing world to pay for it anymore because it will come back to bite us. It is coming back to bite us. So yes, um, so these are the revolutions we need to have. I'm hopeful, I'm glass half full, absolutely, because I've seen so many successes, you know, um, and I have no doubt, I mean, people look with nostalgia on like the 60s, don't, you know, like there was like a handful of us. Now there are millions of us. Look, I mean, I, I have so much hope in our, in our youth. I mean, our youth are so much smarter, better, braver, and have so much more reason to have a revolution. <laughs> Um, go for it, I say. Just go for it. I hmm. uh, really appreciate your time this morning. What a pleasure speaking with you. No, no problem. Yeah, go for it. Thanks, Martin. That's it for the show. Thanks for listening, and I hope you liked it. If you want more of Sherry's story, her book is out now. It's called The Queer Evangelist. I've read it. It's fantastic. If you enjoyed the show, do me a favor, hit subscribe, leave a rating and review, and best of all, tell someone else about it. Get them ready for that centennial episode. Triple digits. It's going to be a good one. I'm already excited to share it. 
If you want to get in touch, a few ways you can. You can send me an email at storyuntoldpodcast at gmail.com. You can follow along on Facebook at facebook.com slash storyuntoldpodcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Martin underscore Bauman. Theme music for the show is by Dr. Turtle off the album You Um, I'll Ah. Once again, I'm Martin Bauman, and this was A Story Untold. See you next time. <laughs>